all looks turned towards General Bonaparte, but after a short inspection, he limited himself to saying calmly, They are ours. Captain Paul Tibbles, ADC to General Masana, Battle of Rivoli. This is the Pass for Plebs, Episode 18, Napoleon's Rise to Power. Last week we were introduced to Napoleon at the Siege of Toulon in 1794. We saw Napoleon demonstrate his brilliance as a commander as he inspired his troops and broke through the city's defenses. Following that siege, Napoleon played a controversial yet effective role in Paris in 1795 during an attempted revolt where he used his artillery against the French mob. When he was asked about the incident, he simply replied, I gave them a whiff of grape shot. Now, morality aside, that move did attract the attention of the Directory of France, and he was awarded with a new position as General of the Army of Italy. In today's episode, we're going to follow Napoleon to northern Italy in his brilliant campaign against the Austrians, as well as his adventure into Egypt. A quick update about my own life. The film Napoleon is officially out and it can be seen in theaters. I have my tickets to see the movie tonight, which I am very excited about. Now, I have heard mixed reviews about the historical accuracies of the film, but everyone seems to agree that the visuals are absolutely stunning, which, either way, I'll, I think I'll be very impressed. Now, let's dive back in to Napoleon. So in 1795, Napoleon was entrusted with the command of the French army in Italy. Napoleon, up until this point, had not been able to run an entire campaign on his own. And so for the first time, he would have full control over all the soldiers underneath him. Um, even when he was in command of that siege at Toulon, he wasn't completely in command. He was just in charge of the artillery. Now, Napoleon did his homework before he traveled to North Italy. He read as much as he could about the wars and the battles in the region, and he arrived very well prepared. Honestly, the award, and I'm putting that in quotes, that Napoleon received in Paris, 1795, wasn't really a reward. Uh, the Army of Italy was probably the weakest army in all of France, and the French frontier in North Italy was kind of like the throwaway frontier. Like, So France was still in an ongoing conflict of the Revolutionary Wars, or what we would call the First Coalition Against France. You probably know that word, but if you don't, it's basically, in European terms, actually the coalition has become... Um, a political term now, where in different parliamentary systems, different republican systems in, in European democracies, uh, different parties kind of work together in order to get a majority when they do elections or when they vote on things. Um, and so coalitions have become political. But during this time, coalitions are alliances against France. And so in the first alliance against France, we have all of Europe kind of turns against France especially Austria, the Holy Roman Empire, which is basically Germany, by the way, um, and the British, of course, we talked about Toulon, how the British Navy was there, um, and also the Ottoman Empire. They're going to play a role in later in this episode, but, but, and, and some other smaller countries. So coalition, it's basically France against all of these groups all at once. Now, they're still fighting that first war, and so Austria and the Holy Roman Empire, they're not holding back. Uh, but most of the fighting is, again, in Germany, not in northern Italy. In fact, the Directory kind of 
forgot about Italy in some ways. Um, the soldiers there are very poorly trained. They're, they're hardly paid. Uh, they don't even get food most of the time. And in fact, when Napoleon arrived, he reported that some of the soldiers didn't even have guns. They didn't even have muskets. They had to use like pitchforks and stuff. So in fact, the commanders before Napoleon had actually quit before Napoleon got there because, you know, they had been writing to the directory saying, hey, give us help, send us supplies, we need reinforcements, and they were pretty much just ignored. So it's kind of like Napoleon getting this promotion was kind of plugging the gap. They said, oh, we need a commander there anyway. Napoleon saved us in Paris. Let's send him away to North Italy and just to get rid of him. So needless to say, Napoleon is inheriting quite a situation here. What's more is that in northern Italy, Napoleon had to deal with multiple enemies, including the kingdom of Piedmont, which is centered around Milan, uh, the city. The Pope uh, <laughs> from Rome, he has a lot of influence over the Italians, and he is not very happy with the French, so he spreads a lot of anti-French propaganda. And then most of all, the biggest threat of all, is the Austrian Empire. Now, Napoleon shows up, and the first thing he does is he tries to organize his troops and get them some food, get them some better training. Uh, and so he does this with the help of some other generals who have been there for a while now and know the regions really well. Now, the best strategy that Napoleon takes on in his campaign in Italy is that he divides his enemies in front of him. He knows that the Austrians and Milan, for example, they don't really trust each other because Austria is pretty far away. And so the Austrian army here, they're kind of, en they're encroaching on the territory. So Milan, they're not really best friends with the Austrians. Yeah, they're both fighting against the French, but they don't trust each other enough to maybe die for each other. So Napoleon knows this and he thinks, okay, I could maybe separate them in order to defeat one army at a time. And this is one of Napoleon's key strategies in his wars. He gets, he gets really well known for this, a divide and conquer type of strategy. Um, but I will say is that Napoleon was not the first person to use this, use this strategy. In fact, he learned it in his studies from King Frederick II of Prussia, who demonstrated this strategy with a lot of success during the Seven Years' War in the 1750s and 60s. So Napoleon is actually taking a play out of one of the greatest tacticianers of the 1700s. And he's trying it out in Italy, and boy, did it work. Now, Napoleon quickly made a name for himself. At the first big battle of Lodi, Napoleon sighted his cannons personally, something that generals really don't do. They don't usually get their hands dirty. And so because of this, after the victory, the men started to give him a nickname, Le Petit Corporal, or the Little Corporal. Sorry about my French, it's pretty hideous, but it's close enough. Um, the Little Corporal. Now, generals at this time period, and, all, and really all throughout history, have been given nicknames like this, um, almost like, they're almost playful nicknames. Um, the, the big one that comes to mind is Emperor Caligula in ancient Rome. He got the name Little Boots. Um, and so that was kind of like an endearing, like, hey, you know, we really appreciate you because you grew up around us and you're one of us, right? Um, and the little corporal is something that Napoleon gets kind of granted or, or referred to as by his troops in Italy. And it really is a sign of respect. The fact that he got his hands dirty, he sighted his own guns, he showed the men how to do it. Like, hey, this is how you do it, this is how you aim it. 
they really they really respect him for that. Now at his at his first big defeat at Arcole, Napoleon actually becomes more of a hero, which is kind of strange. Um, his men were basically paralyzed with fear. They were just they they wouldn't move forward no matter what happened. A bunch of officers were trying to get them to push forward. One one general grabs grabs the flag and just jumps out. I believe he says, "Come get come get your colors, men," uh, meaning like like follow the flag. Let's go. And no one would budge. And so then Napoleon grabbed the flag. And keep in mind, Napoleon is like the general of the entire army. And he's out in the front. He grabs the flag, jumps up, and says, let's go. Let's go get some glory. And what is so embarrassing to Napoleon is that no one follows him. No one budges. Um, and so Napoleon is forced to retreat because his men are just too afraid. They, they can't keep fighting. And this goes back to the just the exhaustion um, the, the failed training, the, the army that he inherits is not, they're not brilliant fighters. They can do well, and they do win amazing victories here under Napoleon's leadership, but alone they're not enough. And so, you know, he had to fall back. But that moment at, at, at Arcole, where Napoleon jumps out, it becomes, it becomes this, this key moment in the mythology of Napoleon as a person. He goes down in history. I mean, paintings, stories are written about that moment. Um, and so he's he becomes this like this legendary figure because of that. And then and then another big battle to really highlight is at Rivoli. This is towards the end of the campaign in North Italy. Napoleon's probably most impressive victory in North Italy. Napoleon was entirely surrounded, outnumbered two to one by the Austrians. Um, and so basically the Austrians were coming in encircling him with a fresh battalion of troops. And in the moment, all his generals were like, uh, this is not good. We're surrounded. We're cut off. We're probably going to get destroyed here. And they all looked to Napoleon. And according to the reports, Napoleon was stayed super calm, looked around. And all the only thing he said was, we have them now. And so Napoleon immediately orders a, a full-on counterattack to what he determined to be the weakest link in the Austrian army, and it worked. They overwhelmed the link, the Austrians scrambled to retreat, and in their retreat, the entire Austrian army just fell apart. They lost discipline, and they ran away. And so it just turned into unexpected victory for Napoleon. Now, after, after the victory in northern Italy, Napoleon doesn't stop there. He, in fact, he continues to chase the Austrians all the way to their capital in Vienna, which was a massive surprise to everyone, including France. As I said before, you know, France did not expect anything to come out of North Italy. It was pretty much a wash. And instead, Napoleon took the weakest frontier and turning in, turned it into a sweeping victory for the French. He signed a treaty with Austria, and Austria stepped out of the war. They, they agreed to a, to a peace. In fact, he signed treaties on behalf of the French government and he actually could have gotten into some trouble because he didn't ask for permission to do it. Uh, he just went out and started signing treaties with like the Kingdom of Naples, for example. Or, you know, he just created new governments, entire new countries in North Italy. Um, and so when he did that, he, he, he was aligning them to the French cause and he was creating them in the form of Republican uh, governments, very much like the revolutionaries would want. So he was kind of spreading the ideas of the revolution into the new lands that he was 
I, w- I want to say conquering, even though he wasn't keeping them for himself, if that makes any sense. It's a very unique situation. So Napoleon is kind of, he's wearing two hats here. He's a general and a tacticianer, and then he's also a statesman. So he returns to France, a big hero, and he plans his next expedition to travel to Egypt and the Middle East. Now, you might be thinking, why? Like, wait a minute, what? Why the Middle East? Well, as I mentioned before, the first coalition, they basically already defeated the Holy Roman Empire and Austria. So now all that was left was the Ottoman Empire and, of course, the British Navy, the British Empire. Um, And so one of the key points that Napoleon wanted to strike at was Egypt, specifically because the Red Sea, that that crossing through um, that crossing that would eventually become known as the Suez Canal was pretty important and pretty crucial for European trade because it was able you you could cut right through the Red Sea to get over to the to what they called the East Indies, uh, basically meaning all of Asia and India as opposed to having to go all the way south and down and around Africa, which would take an additional you know, few weeks to do. So in order to do this, he wanted to go in and kind of liberate a lot of the different... Keep in mind, the Ottomans have their own empire at this point. They control Egypt, they control Syria, they control, um, they control Iraq, also like Greece and places like that. So Napoleon is thinking, all right, the next empire I'm going to mess with are the Ottomans since they joined in against us. So Napoleon takes plans an expedition, and it starts off really well. They they port at Malta, and they take that island as kind of like a launching point, and then they move right into Egypt. They overtake Alexandria, which is right on the coast of the Mediterranean. They move down. They take a lot of key cities in Egypt. And the entire time, Napoleon tries to frame himself as the liberator of those people. He wants to he wants to pull apart the Ottoman Empire and to make these new countries that he's going to end up wanting to create friends of France, just like he did in Italy. And so he goes in and he finds that there is a ruling class called the Mamluks. And this is an this is a medieval class of of Turkic warriors who kind of control Egypt. They answer to the Ottomans, but they're the real ones in power. And so what he does is he tries to inspire the locals against them, where he says, hey, I'm here to liberate you from the Mamluks so that Egypt can once again be free. And so in that process, of course, the Ottomans do support. But, I mean, he does he has extreme success. Um, he defeats the Ottoman forces in almost every battle when he's extremely outnumbered. Um, he was able to take power in Egypt, and then he also continued campaigning up to the Levant, or like modern-day Israel, modern-day Syria, and modern-day Iraq. When he was um, much later, Napoleon writes about his life and his campaigns. And when he talks about the Egypt campaign, he talks about things that he was planning to do, things that he would have done if he was more victorious. And one of the things he talks about is liberating the Jewish people, liberating all these different groups. Um, He said that at one point, if, if I was victorious at Accra, which we'll talk about in a second, then I would have had all my soldiers don turbans, put on turbans, and take on local customs, and we would tear apart the Ottoman Empire. It's a very interesting, like, what if in history. Um, And historians, and even he, seems to think that his goal was to maybe come up through Constantinople, re-liberate Constantinople, and then then return through Europe, and eventually get back to France that way. Um, But at the Siege of Acre, Napoleon meets his match. He ends up getting defeated by the Ottomans. His army was cut off and disease started to set in. 
And this is mainly due to the fact that the British, em British Empire starts to get involved. They start to catch up to what the French are doing in the Middle East, and they, and they respond. The British Navy blockades the French ports in the Mediterranean. They get cut off from all supplies. And so Napoleon, I mean, I mean, we just talked about in Italy how Napoleon was like there with his men, like manning the guns himself, like leading the charge, grabbing the flag. Something very strange happens in the Middle East. Napoleon flees the campaign in 1798, and he returns to France, leaving his army behind. And the army, after Napoleon leaves, just gets tore apart. They lose almost every battle after, and, and almost all the French are captured, imprisoned by the British and the, and the Ottomans, and they're never really heard from again. A few survivors make it back, but it's, it's just a wash. And so here's the deal, though, because Napoleon arrives back in France long before anyone else. And so he is able to control the flow of information from his failure in Syria. So Napoleon kind of spins it as, uh, yeah, yeah, they're fighting over there. I left now and we're here now. I'm back in Paris. I'm still a hero. And it really works. Napoleon downplays his loss in the Middle East very well. And he basically proves himself to be proficient in propaganda. Now, more importantly, upon his return to Paris, the Directory had proved itself pretty inept and, and a weak form of government, and they were unable to satisfy the needs of the French people. This really shouldn't be a surprise, since as we talked about in 1795, which is like they were, a new, they were new back then, but in 1795, the only reason the Directory wasn't completely destroyed then was because of Napoleon's grapeshot incident and the fact that he stood up for them and protected them. So the French government was once again in a state of crisis. Now there was more organization. So key political leaders organized a coup d'etat in 1799, meaning they planned to overthrow the government. Napoleon was a part of that movement. And Napoleon gave a, a distracting speech to the assembly. Um, well, another general, Murat, ordered some soldiers, a battalion of soldiers, into the chambers to arrest and uh, imprison the, the directory. Murat famously throws open the doors, runs in with his soldiers, and shouts, Citizens, you have been dissolved. And then right after that, he says, Get this effing rabble out of here. So sorry about that explicit language there. Pardon my French. Ha! No pun intended. But yeah, that's literally his quote. He says, get out of here. You guys are done. And he, and he arrests them. So the directory, some people escaped. They were, most of them were arrested by the troops. But it was clear that the new government was going to prevail. And at the head of that new government was none other than Napoleon Bonaparte, which was actually kind of a surprise to a lot of people because, yeah, Napoleon was a great general. He was a great leader. But there were many other polit political powers in France that could rival Napoleon. So what happened was they, they instated a consular government, um, meaning it led by a consul, an elected leader. And there were three consuls. One of those consuls was Napoleon Bonaparte. Now, over the next couple of years, he would slowly tighten his control over France. And he became first consul. And then he became consul for life. Until finally, in 1804, he would crown himself emperor of France. Napoleon's rise to power doesn't really seem like it belongs in the 18th and 19th century. He takes power over France through his military successes, much like the ancient leaders of Julius Caesar or Pompey Magnus. 
The coup, in fact, shares more in common with a lot of 20th century movements in Italy or the famous overthrow of the Weimar Republic than it does the monarchies of the 17 and 1800s. One thing is for certain. Napoleon now has full control over all of France. And in doing so, he is preparing the defense of the nation once again. Because now, instead of France's enemies coming together for just France, they're teaming up against a single man, Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte. Thanks for joining us on the adventure through the Napoleonic Wars. My plan is to explore Napoleon's campaigns up through 1815, and then we can turn back around and fill in some gaps and spend more time with some key moments and analysis of Napoleon and the people who surround him. I'm excited to see the film, which is already out. I have my tickets for tonight, as I mentioned earlier, and I'm doing my best to not go in with super high expectations. That way, if it sucks or if it's bad, I won't get that disappointed. Tune in next time to The Pass for Plebs as we continue this campaign. Remember to subscribe to our channels and consider liking the podcast episode to help boost the page. As always, I'm your host, Sean, and remember, it's okay to be stuck in the past.